This episode of Truth Table is brought to you by InterVarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at IVPress and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. Kemeny, welcome to our first Truce Table Classroom episode for season four. As you know, from time to time, we try to expose you guys to our individual ministries, what we do when we're not together. And uh, it's about that time in the season to uh, have a Truce Table Classroom. So in this episode, I am talking about eschatology and Black Lives Matter, the, the title of the lecture is Why We Can't Wait, Eschatology and Black Lives Matter. I gave this lecture, my goodness, when I first started speaking, actually, this was actually my first lecture, y'all, 2014 or 2015. I can't remember the exact year. I want to say it's one of those two years. Honestly, it does, it saddens me that it is applicable today, like word for word, pound for pound. Every jot and tittle is still applicable today. Uh, but that's uh, the nature of fighting against um, white supremacy, uh, which is structural and spiritual. So I hope that this episode um, galvanizes you. I hope it encourages you. I hope it convicts you. Uh, but ultimately, I hope it points you to Jesus and practical ways you can engage the current moment. So pull up a chair, have a notebook handy, ready to go, or your iPhone note um, app uh, and be ready to take notes. Class is in session. Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. The session is packed. I did not expect that. So (laughs) there's uh, three more seats up here. So please get comfy and cozy. Um, So the way we're going to do this today is that um, we have about two hours, but I'm actually going to split the time um, and share uh, with Jared Oliphant. He'll be coming up after me, so I'll be speaking for about 45 minutes or so. Typically, I like to have interaction, but uh, there's because the matter is so urgent and there's a lot of material I want to cover, um, I'll be asking some questions, but not as much as I typically do because I want to reserve some time for Q&A and discussion, um, a brief maybe five-minute discussion at the end so that we can think through these issues together. Um, So before I start, um, I know maybe some of you all are familiar with me um, from Facebook or the Twitter streets, as I call them, (laughs) and have wondered, how do you say her name? So my name is Akemeni Uwan, and I am a fourth-year MDiv student at Westminster Theological Seminary, Um, and... Today, we'll be talking about, well, the name of the talk is Why We Can't Wait, Eschatology and um, Black Lives Matter. And uh, if you picked up on it, it's actually a nod to Martin Luther King and his book, um, Why We Can't Wait. And sadly, his book is much more relevant than I ever thought it would be. So if you haven't read it, I suggest that you do read it um, because it has much wisdom and counsel for our current climate. 
climate that we're in. So the goal of this talk is actually to demonstrate how eschatology is embedded in Genesis and how this understanding actually bears practical implications on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so before I begin, let me go ahead and just define what eschatology is. And eschatology, you see it right here. Eschatology is the study of last things or ultimate things which pertain to Christ's return. Um, and also um, in the New Testament, the last days were inaugurated um, through Christ's advent. So his life, his death, his resurrection, um, and also the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. You can see Acts 2, 16 through 21, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, and 1 Peter 1, 20, just to get more insight um, into that. So when you hear eschatology, what book do you automatically think about? Revelation. David. Daniel. <laughs> Revelation. <laughs> exactly. So when we think about, you know, eschatology, we automatically go to Revelation, and that's good and necessary. But um, our understanding of eschatology is incomplete if we actually don't start in Genesis. <laughs> and this may seem counterintuitive, but a beginning presupposes an end. So to Genesis, we must go. So from the outset, it must be said that God deals with people in covenants. Every human being who has ever been born is in covenant with the one triune God. You're either dead in Adam and in covenant disobedience, or you're alive in Christ and in covenant obedience. There are only two options. Um, so with that said, let's take a look at the first covenant that God made, which is known as the covenant of works. So what is the covenant of works? Before I actually answer the what, we should actually try to answer the why. Like, why did God make a covenant with man in the first place? Or to put it another way, what was God's goal in the covenant of works? My professor, uh, my systematics um, professor, Dr. Lane Tipton, says this. He said, God wants to confer or give himself in a communion bond on a holy people in a holy realm through an obedient representative head. Okay? So if you do not understand anything else that I say about the covenant of works, please understand this, that God wants to give himself in a communion bond to a holy people in a holy realm through a federal or representative head. Okay? So, and I'll, that will start to make more sense as I talk. Now let's turn our attention to the what question. What is the covenant of works? Now the covenant, like I said before, the covenant of works is the covenant that God made with man. It's the first covenant that he made with man. And in it, he promised eternal life and blessedness um, through the perfect obedience of Adam. Now before the fall and within the covenant of works, Adam was on probation. He had to meet the conditions of the probation in order um, to actually advance beyond uh, what, what we would say is the probationary period. So he had he was under the threat of death because the serpent was present in the garden. Does that make sense? Okay. And so he had to meet the conditions of the probation, which was to obey God and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he and his posterity, which is us, would have advanced beyond probation into eschatological glory. You'll hear me say eschatological a lot because it's not a Westminster lecture unless I say it at least 10 times, okay? Uh -huh. So, so um, let me read Genesis 2, 15 through 17, okay? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it 
and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this passage in Genesis 2, 15 to 17 lays out the details of the covenant of works, even though it doesn't make explicit mention of it. And there are four indications, I'm sorry, four indications of the covenant within this text. The first is that there are two parties involved, God and man. The second is that there is a clear commandment from God to Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The third is that there's a penalty or curse for disobedience. And um, in it, he said, in the day that you shall eat of it, I'm sorry, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the fourth is that the reward of eternal life and blessedness is implied. So Adam's responsibility, according to Genesis 2.15, was to work it and keep it. Okay. Um, and actually, I'll write this here. Let's see. My, my Hebrew is a little rusty, so don't judge me. <laughs> Shamar is keep it. Okay. And let's see. Avad uh, is to work it, okay? This is in the, um, in the Hebrew. And these two verbs are actually what's used in Numbers 3, 7 to 8, which speaks of the Levitical priest's duty with respect to the uh, tabernacle. So the priests were to guard against any unclean thing that entered uh, the temple. And if that unclean thing came near, they were actually to put it to death immediately. Numbers 3, 9 to 10 says this, And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And you can also see Numbers 18, 1 through 7, just to get more of an idea of what the priest's um, duty was. Um, so in the same way, Adam's role in the garden was to guard and keep the holy temple of Eden and put to death anyone who would defile it, which in this case was the serpent. Now, this implies that Adam is actually the first prophet, priest, and king. He was a prophet in that God gave him a clear command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, He was a priest in that he was charged with working and keeping the garden temple and guarding it from any profane thing, which would be the serpent. And he was a king in that he was given dominion and he was to actually rule on the earth. So we know that from Genesis 1:28. And so we want to remember that the goal of the covenant of works was that God wants to confer himself in a communion bond on a holy people in a holy realm through an obedient representative head. That head would be Adam. Now, um, and the covenant of works was the means by which this was to be accomplished, um, had Adam actually rendered perfect obedience, we he would have actually secured righteousness and been confirmed in his righteousness, and we would have advanced beyond um, Eden and gone into eschatological glory. And so you want to know why we have to continually declare that black lives matter? You, need, you needn't look any further than Genesis 3, 6 through 7, which reads, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, des was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
So what does any of this have to do with Black Lives Matter? It matters because, um, because of Adam's failure to act in his threefold role in the garden. It's because of his failure that we actually have to state the obvious fact that black lives matter. When Adam sinned against God by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, his disobedience brought forth sin, death, and misery to this world and to every human being because he was our representative. So sin has permeated our entire being and the root of um, racism, white supremacy, anti-black violence, and anti-black sentiment, uh, prejudice, um, which, has been sub which has subjugated black people for hundreds of years in this country, is all rooted in Adam's disobedience and his sin against God. So thankfully, though, this is not how the story ends. Because God graciously entered into a second covenant with the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, 14 through 15 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the gospel in seed form, also known Theologians will call it the Proto-Evangelium, which simply means, okay, yes, we got some theologians in here, <laughs> which is, simply means the first gospel, okay? And so in the second covenant, God provided, um, it's called the covenant of grace, and in it, God promised another representative head who will confer himself in a communion bond on a holy people in a holy realm through an, um, and, um, See, his perfect, his perfect obedience is the way that this will be accomplished. So through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that's actually how the goal of the covenant of works is going to be fulfilled or was fulfilled for us. And so the covenant of works finds its fulfillment and climax in Christ. And the covenant of grace is only gracious because Christ was under a covenant of works. Okay? So let's examine Christ's advent. Life, death, burial, and resurrection, and see how this actually shapes the New Testament eschatology and bears uh, practical implications on the lives of those of us who dare to declare that black lives matter. So in the New Testament, we see that the advent of Christ actually brings into view inaugurated eschatology, um, which simply means that the, um, the kingdom of God has actually arrived when Christ arrived. And so uh, the kingdom of God was consistently preached by Jesus. Um, during his earthly ministry, you can see Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, gives you pretty much a treatise on how the kingdom of God is to function, how we are to live, how we're to treat one another um, here, even now. And so the kingdom of God is connected with the idea of inheritance as future. However, and that's a however in caps and bolding, <laughs> the kingdom of God is not only future, okay? It's also present. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, he has delivered us from the, he being God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Romans 14, 17 says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So righteousness in Christ's teachings is always in reference to the kingdom and inaugurated Eschatology, also known as the already not yet, falls within the context of a two-age eschatology, 
which is a mouthful again. <laughs> the two ages are as follows. I'm going to explain. There's the present evil age. Okay, that's the age that is marked by sin and its consequences. The second age is known as the coming age, the new age, or the eschatological age. And it is a final order that is actually marked by righteousness, perfection, joy, peace, um, eternal life, new creation, and the like. Okay? So we have sin, death, misery, and suffering. And I'm going to just say New Age because it's the shortest one. <laughs> so we'll just do N-A. Okay. Um, in the New Age, we have joy, peace, justice, sorry, eternal life, um, power, and the life. Oh, righteousness. Can't forget that. Righteousness. Sorry, my handwriting looks bad. Okay, so if you look at the chart, you can see <coughs> I'm in the way, huh? That the two are completely opposed to one another, okay? Now, sin obviously is a broad category. It includes a lot of things, and there's, this list is exhaustive. Both are exhaustive, but they're completely diametrically opposed. There's nothing in common, okay, with the two. And you can also think, in this respect, you can think Adam represents the old age, and you could think Christ represents the new, if that helps as well, okay? Um, so what is the decisive point, though, that ushers in the new age, okay? When did this new age occur? Um, Hebrews 9.20 says, I'm, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9.26 answers this question definitively, and it reads as follows. For then he would, Jesus, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The author of Hebrews locates the end of the ages at the cross when Jesus puts away sin. It is at the cross that you have an intrusion, okay, of eschatological last days judgment that is supposed to come at the end of the world but it's intruding into and has intruded into history. The reason why Christ puts away sin with the sacrifice of himself is because he stands before the tribunal judgment meant for the end of the age. So the judgment that will befall sinners already befell Christ at the beginning of the age. And I'm going to write another chart. I'll do it on this side. Give this, this side of the room some love. <laughs> Let's see. So, so we have present evil age. Okay. This was ushered in by the fall. We have the, Christ, the, um, the cross, Christ um, taking on eschatological judgment, the judgment that should have been ours. He took on for us because of his finished sacrifice. Now we have the new age, which has come in. Remember, the new age has righteousness, joy, peace, justice. I'm going to repeat that several times because I want us to get that. So we're in the already, not yet. Okay, the overlapping of the ages, and this is where we live. And we're waiting, eagerly waiting for Christ to come back. Okay. Um, now, well, as long as we're living in the um, overlapping age, which is the time after Christ's resurrection, before his second coming, our lives will be marked by suffering, by virtue of our union with Christ, because it has been granted to us to suffer, according to Philippians 1.29. So Paul captures this re the reality of this tension 
that we live in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10. He says this, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, <coughs> as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And Romans 8, 16 through 19, verse 23 also says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So at this point, it's clear, right, um, that each of us must drink of the cup of suffering that the Father has apportioned to each of his children. Um, Christ went through it. We will go through it. Barring Christ's second coming, which we eagerly await, the life of the Christian is marked by suffering. And as African-Americans, we, most, we know this most deeply um, because it's a part of our everyday lives, from being racially profiled by an officer, suffering to getting passed up for an interview due to an ethnic sounding name, suffering. Down to the little black girl who goes home crying to her parents saying that she hates her dark skin and her natural hair because nobody that she's on the, she sees on the television looks like her or the people that she, the books that she reads, she doesn't see any representation. Suffering, okay? Now although suffering is a reality for us all, we must resist the urge to overemphasize suffering to the exclusion of, um, of the inbreaking of the new age. So um, with its blessings, righteousness, joy, peace, justice, and power, because to do so leads to fatalism, okay? But on the other, side, the other hand, we do not want to overemphasize the new age um, to the exclusion of the present evil age, because that leads to what we would call triumphalism or even an over-realized eschatology. So we're leaving, we know we're living here in the overlapping age. So what would it look like if the person was um, just emphasizing only the new age, only the new age, not taking into account the present evil age? Where would we be living? What? Yeah. Here? They're living here, right? Yeah. If you're if you're only thinking, oh, the kingdom is come, <coughs> there's no suffering, and and you you're just devaluing suffering, you don't see any redemptive value in that. You're living here when really in reality you're actually here, which is very frustrating. And it, that type of thinking actually leads us to air. And on the other side, it's the same same story. So we gotta hold those things in balance. So, um, let's see, let's see. Uh, okay, so while it's true that we are a people marked by suffering, ultimately we are characterized by hope. And hope is not an abstract concept, okay? Hope is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only are we living in the present evil age, we also live in a new age with its attendant blessings, okay? Righteousness, joy, peace, justice, and power. And as believers, we are new creations who have been delivered from the present evil age and are seated with Christ in heavenly places, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 1.4, and Ephesians 2.6. Our deliverance from the present evil age is actual, okay? So it's not simply 
um, future. It has happened. Um, and this has been affected by believers in the death and resurrection of Christ. So we have already been delivered from the present evil age. We are not to conform to this world because we have been delivered from it. Romans um, 12, 2. <coughs> the old has passed away and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a very familiar passage says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This passage is not just about regeneration. In fact, it actually points to the cosmic the cosmic reality of the two ages, okay? And this means that the old way has passed away, but it is not just past, it's not just my past that's passed away or even your past that has passed away, but the old fallen creation, okay? This, all of this has actually passed away. Um, the unredeemed world in sin and misery. It's a reference to the present evil age as well. So not just our own individual regeneration, but it's actually referencing the two ages. So similarly, the new things of the new creation or the new age has been inaugurated at Christ's resurrection and ascension. So if you're in Christ, you already participate in the new age with all of its right. attendant blessings. Right. Okay. Right. We have to know that. So, okay, so what? So what? So what about the uh, present evil age? So what about the new age? Like, what is, what does it have to do with anything? Okay. Well, it matters because we are new creations who live in a new age as well as the present evil age. Um, we are to bring the blessings of the new age to bear in this present age. So these blessings right here, the joy, the peace, justice, eternal life, power, righteousness. We're actually supposed to bring these and they ought to manifest itself in our actions and engagement with Black Lives Matter um, and the Black Lives Matter movement as we seek to live out the gospel um, in our respective communities and spheres of influence. And all, all the while bearing in mind though that we do live in the already and not yet, which means that we have to get comfortable living in that tension, okay? Christians, we would do well to hold the categories of the present evil age, the new age, um, and suffering in a simultaneous balance, okay? Um, because that will help to lead us um, from erring, or keep us, I should say, from erring <coughs> on either side of the coin. So this means that we expect progress and we advocate for um, on that behalf of the oppressed, but we know that change or progress won't come easily because of the reality of the present evil age, okay? So therefore, we press on, advocate for the marginalized with sober expectation, but with expectation nonetheless. Have you ever felt too progressive for conservatives, but too conservative for progressives? Christians often feel like they are forced to choose between social justice and biblical values, and it's easy to become disillusioned with civic engagement or even fall back into tribal extremes. This state of affairs has damaged the Christian public witness and divided the church. The authors of the new book, Compassion and Conviction, represent the AND campaign, which exists to educate and organize Christians for faithful civic and cultural engagement. They make the biblical case for how it is possible to engage the political process with both love and truth, compassion and conviction. And we have an exclusive offer for our Truth Table listeners. You can save 40% off on Compassion and Conviction, the Anne Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement by Justin Gibney, Michael Ware, and Chris Butler when you use the promo code TRUTH20. That's promo code TRUTH20. 
20 when you purchase Compassion and Conviction at ivypress.com. So the question that remains for us to answer really is, what does this have to do, you know, with the Rikia Boyds, Eric Garner's, the DeJaria Beckton's, the Khalif Browder's, the Ayanna Stanley Jones's, um, and the Tamir Rice's of the world? Um, more to the point, what does any of this have to do with Black Lives Matter? Um, well, it has everything to do with the Black Lives Matter movement because those of us who believe in Christ have been delivered from this present evil age. Galatians 1.4, Ephesians 2.2, 2, and Romans 12.2. And because Christ has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God, we are also seated with Christ in heavenly places and have been released from our ultimate oppression, which is bondage to sin. Okay, And in light of Christ's finished work, his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his session, he's seated right now at the right-hand side of the Father, interceding for us now, Okay, Acts 2, 33. The new age has broken into the present evil age with its attendant blessings, righteousness, justice, peace, (coughs) joy, and power, to name a few of these blessings. The blessings are experienced as a foretaste, okay, of the new age that will be consummated upon Christ's second coming. So the gospel contains indicatives, okay, which tell us who we are and whose we are, but it also contains imperatives and tells us what we ought to do in light of Christ's finished work in a light of who we are. And so by the grace of God imparted to us, we, we learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead and plead the widow's cause. That's Isaiah 117. We also begin to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, Micah 6, 8. And we know that our God is the father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. That's Psalm 68, verse 5. The church ought to reflect this reality analogically and practically, okay? So the question, now that begs the question, who exactly are the widows and the orphans in our modern day context, especially where it concerns the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, Jennifer Pinckney, the wife of the late Reverend Clementa Pinckney, is a widow. Esau Garner, uh, the wife of Eric Garner, is now a widow, um, and countless other widows whose husbands have been slain by the police. How about the women um, whose husbands, boyfriends, or children's fathers were sentenced to life prison, um, life in prison for a nonviolent crime? Are they not also functionally widows as well? Um, what about the fatherless, Milana and Eliana Pinckney? Or what about the mothers left without their sons and daughters? Women like Vanita Browder, whose son Khalif Browder committed suicide after being falsely imprisoned at Rikers Island for three years. At the tender age of 16, he was locked up at Rikers Island. No charges were ever brought against him. Okay. Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon's mom, Trayvon Martin's mom. I say Trayvon because I think most of us know. Yeah. Trayvon Martin's mom. Samiria Rice, Tamir Rice's mom. And how about Dominica Jones, the mother of seven-year-old Ayanna Stanley Jones, who was gunned down while she was sleeping at home in her bed. What about them? As believers, what is our role? Do we only tell them to wait and endure sufferings until the consummation of the eschatological age? Or do we affirm that reality that we must endure in suffering and trials and persecutions and also, though, share the reality that the new age has broken through into the present evil age with its with 
its intended blessings like righteousness, joy, peace, justice, and power? The answer is both and, not either or. Because of the inbreaking of the new age and the grace of God at work within us, we are to see that these blessings become a functional reality in the lives of the oppressed. Always, and that's a big always in caps, bearing in mind the reality that we are living in the already and not yet. In so doing, we're not giving ourselves over to fatalism by emphasizing suffering to the exclusion of the new age. And on the flip side, we're not overemphasizing the new age to the exclusion of the present evil age, which leads to an overrealized eschatology, living over there, okay? Or bringing tomorrow and today, if you can think about it that way. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.20, and I'll read, that um, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And my friend, Jamar Tisby, once said that the church leads from the margins. And in this present evil age, Power manifests itself in weakness, um, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 2 Corinthians 12, 9. So in what ways can the church lead from the margins in the Black Lives Matter movement? So I offer six ways that we can begin to advocate on behalf of the oppressed and correct oppression, as Isaiah 117 aptly states. Now, this list is not exhaustive, and I'm learning and thinking through these issues alongside of you. Um, the first way that the church can actually lead from the margins is through prayer, okay? I think we need to ask ourselves, are we praying about these issues as much as we're tweeting, Facebooking, and Instagramming these problems? That's important. I will talk, touch on that later. But are we praying about it as much as... We're tweeting about it, you know, and I'm guilty of that. I could definitely be praying more about these issues. I do, but we need to be taking it to the Lord. And the reason why is that we must not forget that God uses ordinary means, okay, to bring about his extraordinary ends. So the church has to pray continually about racial division, inequality, um, anti-black violence and anti-black sentiment, systemic racism, police brutality, and mass incarceration, to name a few. Okay, these matters, they're spiritual strongholds. This is what spiritual warfare looks like. Okay, um, these are spiritual matters and they need to be cast down uh, with spiritual weapons. And prayer is the most powerful arsenal um, weapon in our arsenal. Okay, number two, the second way that we actually leave from the margins is that we must vote in every election, but especially the local and state elections. Because the elections at the local level actually have more bearing on our lives than the presidential election. Now, do vote in the presidential election, but also vote in the state and local elections as well. Now, for example, back in, sorry, back in 1994, my home state of California had Proposition 184 on the, um, the, the ballot for the state election. Does anybody know what the name of that proposition was? Any guesses? No, 184. It's actually Proposition 184, but this is back in 94, probably before some of y'all's time, Lord. <laughs> Help me, Lord. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the name of the initiative was, <laughs> the name of the initiative was Three Strikes and You're Out. Okay? You guys know what it is, but you just didn't know the proposition number. This law imposed harsher sentences on repeat offenders, and oftentimes these sentences resulted in life and in prison, I'm sorry, life in prison, 
and disproportionately <laughs> impacted African Americans and Latinos. Okay, in fact, uh, just two two weeks, two and a half weeks ago, uh, former President Bill Clinton, um, who signed the crime bill into law in 1994, admitted. Okay, that that bill made the problem of mass incarceration worse. Okay, he did actually cop to that. So what is my point? My point is that elections at the state and local level matter in all caps. <laughs> that law was passed. Okay, in California, with seventy-two percent in favor and twenty-eight percent against it. So imagine what would have happened had more people participated in the election or had voted the other way. What would happen? What would our jails or prisons look like now? Um, number three, the third way that we actually lead from the margins is that we can write and donate, okay? While voting is important, it is equally important to put our money where our vote is. Mm. Now, I'm a broke student, not understand. Okay. I'm like, wait, what? But this is important. If we're going to make any headway on these issues, we, there's a sacrifice on our part. Okay. Um, so policies change when politicians, um, with them, when the politicians base has the power to influence their representative, senator, or congressman to change policies in the directions of his or, or his, I'm going to say his or her, um, constituency's desires. Okay. Um, the fourth way that we lead from the margins is through peaceful protests or demonstrations. So we can participate and or help organize um, peaceful, peaceful protests when the need arises. Okay. And number five, you want to uh, steward your network or steward your platform, whatever you want to call it. Um, you you want to use your social media accounts, okay, which are your Facebook, your Twitter, your IG, to champion the uh, Black Lives Matter cause. You don't need to have a name or tons of followers, you know, to be influential. Um, for better or for worse, social media actually amplifies the voices of those who need to be heard and those who should not ever be heard. So why not take advantage of social media and use it to educate and inform those within our circle of influence? And number six, and final suggestion that I have, is that we want to challenge ourselves, challenge yourself and others, okay? And this is um, for all of us in here, but particularly also our non-black brothers and sisters who have been watching the news and, and maybe are hearing about this for the first time. And it's probably, I would imagine it's very overwhelming because it's overwhelming for me. And I've known about these issues all my life because I've been black all my life. Okay. My first suggestion is that you actually challenge what you've been con conditioned to think. I think oftentimes we don't think we've been conditioned, but we have, we all have been con conditioned for good, better or for worse. Okay. The best way that you can begin to undo some of Maybe some warped thinking that we may have is that you can actually begin to read books um, from African-American authors, writers, civil rights leaders, um, especially, um, and I'll just take my little soapbox here, um, especially when I think about MLK, his legacy and his image has been co-opted and he's been painted in so many different ways. We hear the quotes and we use them out of context, but we don't know where the, um, what the context is of many of the great, wonderful, wise things that he said. So read these people in context, and that gives you a better idea of really the plight you know, of black people. So, so read books from African-American authors who are speaking about um, the, the, the circumstances that we live in or have had to endure. I'd also recommend um, reading academic journals articles um, about these issues about race because it's very complex. It's not as um, 
you know, it's not as com it's not a common sense type of thing. It's very technical when you actually begin to get down into the details of it. Um, and also read online news articles um, on race in this country. And also don't assume that every black person is informed or even privy, you know, to even the plight, you know, of black people. Uh, we're I think we're all learning, you know, on this journey. I don't I think we all thought everything was okay, but things started to really ratchet up. Jeez, maybe this, well, actually, when Trayvon died, actually was murdered. So, so we want to make sure that we're hearing from good people that actually have a good balance and actually are able to speak into these issues with nuance and knowledge, okay? So that you can speak into these issues with nuance, okay? But nuance requires knowledge, okay? Um, so my second suggestion, I think is even more important than that, is that you challenge any form of racist ideologies you hear from your friends and family members, okay? Imagine what would have happened if Dylan Roof's family and friends had done that very thing. Would the Charleston Nine still be among the living? That's a very real question that demands an answer. Um, so these are a few um, suggestions, not exhaustive, but these are things that we can all at least begin to do today. Um, and it's time for the church to really become like the sons of Ishakar. Okay, uh, who understood the time in which they lived and they knew what to do. First Chronicles 12, 32. So why can't we wait? Because doing so does not properly reckon with the inbreaking okay, of the new age. Okay, so why can't we wait? Because to do so trifles with the imperatible thrust of the gospel. Why can't we wait? Because any one of us can become the next hashtag. Okay. So woe to us if our theology never makes its way from our head down to our heart and down to our feet. Woe to us. Mm -hmm.